0: Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. I'm here with Kyle and Natalie. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Natalie.
1: Hi. Hi, hi, everybody.
0: So uh, today, we we I, I really like the way we're recording these last uh, few episodes, which is uh, the two of you do all, all of the heavy lifting and decide what we're going to talk about, and then we we sit down to record here, and you tell me what we're going to talk about. So that's awesome. So, uh, Natalie, what are we going to talk about today?
1: Well, we're going to talk about empowerment today and I'm actually going to hand the mic over to Kyle because Kyle and I are friends and we have this verbal pen pal where we just talk to each other on record and just listen. It's like having your own personal podcast and we talk to each other on record over WhatsApp and, um, We were having a conversation about empowerment, and then all of a sudden, I get an email from lovely Carol saying, you're going to have a podcast episode on empowerment, and I'm thinking, what is happening? So um, it was actually Kyle's brainchild coming from one of our chit-chats, so I'm going to pass it on to you, Kyle.
0: Kyle, did you empower Carol to to make that decision?
2: Yes, and I empowered Natalie to be a part of the conversation. Um, okay. So I think the starting point, um, that we are going to be at for today is empowerment is a word that we see a lot in the Pilates fitness space. And I think we're starting from a point where we're going to question what, what is that word and what does it actually mean to empower someone? And when we're using it in the context of Pilates, What exactly does that mean in terms of how students and clients are treated in their experiences with us as instructors? Um, And then a sub-question of, is empowerment or empowering somebody in a Pilates context the same thing as making them feel good? Can they be different? Are they different? Can they exist together? Um, I think, yeah, that's where we should start.
0: Okay. Lead off then.
2: So in our voice memoing, um, this came up because Nat and I were talking about Pilates history and Pilates classroom culture. Um, and I don't want to speak for Nat, but I know that for me in both of the trainings that I did and a lot of the Pilates culture that I was indoctrinated into, um, empowerment was very much not a Part of how I was taught to teach, um, and that could be partially because I came from a dance background, but also because it's what was modeled to me through all of my teachers and mentors, whether they intended to or not. And um, for me, a lack of empowerment in the Pilates space looks a lot like micromanaging. Um, so I know that this podcast has we've gone down that rabbit hole a little bit, but a lot of just over cueing, like telling making students feel like they need permission to do anything that they might choose to do in a class. So for example, like making them worry that they're inhaling at the wrong time or exhaling at the wrong time, because you are dictating all of the things that they are allowed to do in that experience. And I, will say that I have taught that way in the past. And now my mission is very much not to teach that way. Um, but I think we're not alone in this having been an experience of kind of how we came into Pilates, and Nat and I were sort of commiserating on the fact that that was kind of a place that we both started um, in our teaching. Do you want to add anything, Nat? Yeah, I do. I guess maybe the first thing I want to say is um, my definition,
1: my working definition of empowerment is that you're you're seeding power, you're giving power over. So in in the setting in a Pilates class setting, I'm the teacher and I have clients, maybe one client or a group of clients, and the power dynamic is pretty obvious. I'm the teacher i'm I'm the person who's going to be telling people what to do. i'm the person who sets the music perhaps and who has the program and the choreography and the list of exercises and so on and so forth. So the power dynamic is pretty obvious um, and empowerment really is just giving over of power so in a in a relationship, you give over power so another example would be parent and child who's got the Who's got the power in the relationship and how is the power exchanged? So Kyle mentioned micromanagement and I actually wrote a whole list of things because I also came from a, I came from a training that I believe was really much about the teacher is the expert in the room. The teacher is, is very teacher centered. The teacher is the expert in the room. The teacher sets the tone, the teacher, sets everything. And so micromanagement was something I wrote down. I also wrote down nitpicking, gatekeeping, hovering, jumping into rescue, general distrust, and lack in faith of the body and the client's abilities and tolerance. And also one that I just thought about because it happened to one of my students, my breathe students, just a a little while ago is having a very narrow definition of how a movement should look or feel.
0: So I'm I'm going to try and add some chaos and and maybe, or maybe just add some nuance. I'm not sure, but I think uh, I, I broadly agree with with what you've both said. But I would say that uh, m- yeah, maybe I'm picking it up incorrectly, but it seems to me that there's kind of an implicit implication there, an implicit statement that that empowerment is a good thing. You know that we should be empowering people. But I, so that's one thing, and I th- I think that you know you know possibly I agree with that, but I think it's context dependent, right? So. I don't know, if I go to some expert, I don't know, like a plumber, right? They come to fix my sink. And I say, okay, can you fix the sink? And he's like, oh, well, no, you, you tell me which bit you want me to take off. You know, I empower you to make the decisions. I don't, I don't know anything about freaking sinks. You know, you you make the decisions, please. <laughs> That's what I'm paying you for. So actually, in some situations, I don't think it necessarily is better to empower somebody if they like don't have the information to make a good decision. So sometimes you actually pay somebody, to disempower you because they actually know better, you know what to do. Like I don't want the pilot to empower me to fly the plane. I want the pilot to fly the plane for me, you know, <laughs> and make all the decisions. So, uh, yeah. So there's that. There's that. And I think also that that when you say seeding power, I agree. And you know, I think you know, I think the dictionary definition, definition which we looked up before we started here is of empower is to give somebody the authority to, you know, decide something you know, um, or to do something. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's good, but I think it doesn't, it's not a binary. Like I think it happens within a hierarchy as well. So for example, in a Pilates class, you might want somebody to have more choice and autonomy over choosing their spring setting, for example, but you, you might not just, you don't want it to be just like completely, everything is open. It's like, okay, you know, you don't even have to do Pilates. You just come and you can have a picnic on the Reforma, choose your own music, you know, come and go whatever time you want. Everybody do their own exercises. Don't follow me. Like, so there has to be some level of hierarchy in that class. Otherwise, what the heck are they paying you for if not, I mean, they're not just renting the equipment, right? So so I think it's not an either or. It's a like how much do we mm-hmm.
2: seed. I I agree with you. Um, And I think maybe it helps or at least it helps my brain to put sort of education context in this setting, because in the context of Pilates, like we are delivering some form of information to the person that's coming. Um, And I guess something we had talked about off air before we hopped on, which my brain always goes to is that. There's a difference between an authoritarian teaching style, which assumes that everyone who's coming to you is an empty vessel and is not allowed to be seen as an individual and isn't potentially even capable of making their own decisions in that power structure. Like that's one way to view the room versus understanding that you have an expertise and information that people want and that you can help facilitate, but seeing yourself as a guide or a coach that is able to facilitate positive movement learning experiences through a variety of tools rather than just dictating exactly how everything has to be. Um, I do agree that it can't just be fully democratic Pilates. Like you can't just come in and have a picnic or like do whatever you want. Like you are paying to take a class or a session. So there needs to be structure there. But the, at least in my experience, the traditional way of how we tend to view Pilates sessions or classes needing to be structured is so much more specific than it needs to be. Um, And there's actually a lot of teaching tools, like just even the idea of being able to layer a class, like build exercises up in layers where you can continually offer options that people can then choose, which might mean that at some point in your teaching experience, your class is all moving at different paces and on different springs and their shapes are going to look slightly different but they're all ultimately trying to do some kind of lunge on the reformer like you have to be okay with it not looking the same but they are all equally having like a very valuable movement experience that is being facilitated by similar cues and structure if that makes sense
0: Mm. what did you mean when you said uh, kyle i think it was you who said at the start there's a difference between empowering and and enjoying the session or making them feel good?
2: So I think that the, uh, I think the trendiness, I think there's a trendiness to the idea of empowerment in our industry right now. And I think there's also a genuine desire to rally around that idea. Um, However, I think often it's coming from our desire as Pilates professionals to make people feel good. Like, Every Pilates person I know wants their clients and students to leave their sessions feeling good. Like, we all go into the room with that as an intention and a desire. But having somebody leave the room and feel great after a movement session isn't necessary. I mean, that's a great thing. And you should strive for that. I think it's a really admirable goal. But to label that as also empowering somebody is actually not, I don't think it's the same. Um, like for example, if you go into a session with a sort of more traditional teacher and they micromanage every moment of your shape, your breath, your number of repetitions, you can't do one more, one less, like you're going to leave that session feeling the endorphin rush of having had an effective session, hopefully. Um, but I don't know if that session, I can't say that that session will have left you feeling like you have better ownership over your personal practice, if that makes sense. Or I guess a different way to say it or a different way Matt and I had been talking about it before is that I think the confusion around what is actually what does actually empowering a client look like versus just making them feel good can often come from the confusion of feeling like Pilates is your product versus understanding that Pilates is the toolbox that you're using to help this person achieve.
0: Now, what do you think about this, you know, like the the idea that Kyle raised of, of empowerment being kind of a, I want to use a really outdated term here and say trendy, um, kind of buzzword. And it, it's interesting to me that you know every generation has their buzzwords you know in the 60s it was like groovy baby you know and uh you know now now with the the teenagers it's like you know stat no cap you know
1: riz.
0: <laughs> um riz. Riz, yeah
2: um <laughs> uh,
0: yeah low key um mid um and and so we you know we all have these these you know language has fashions I guess. And in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, it seems to me that empowerment wasn't even part of the lexicon when it came to Pilates. It just wasn't a thing that, like tomato soup, it just didn't seem to be in any way relevant to Pilates. But lately, like the last decade or so, it's like, yeah, basically, I mean, it's everywhere. So, yeah, do you think this is a, you know, kind of a trendy term? And if so, do you think we're overusing it? I mean, I I guess you do think, because you're the one that raised the topic here, Mm -hmm. but it's like, yeah, what are your thoughts on that kind of socio-cultural fashion?
1: I do think it's a a buzzword because I think it sells, right? Like, you know, so I'm somebody in my middle age and as I'm heading towards menopause, for instance, and I'm also a woman and I'm also a person of colour. So it's like all of these things, like, all of these things make me want to feel empowered <laughs> because the the flip side of it is that as a woman and a woman of color and a woman heading towards middle age where in in the past as I start to head towards middle age I become irrelevant right because like my ovaries are dying I'm no longer in my sexual prime it's very disempowering so the idea of like there's this thing out there that can help me cultivate And maintain my power Mm -hmm. seems really sexy and right. Like, Mm -hmm. I would want that for myself. I would want to feel empowered. And does Pilates empower me? And Pilates actually does empower me. That's why I'm in the business. But I think one of the things that Kyla and I were talking about is like, when we look at the, I'm I'm using very broad strokes here but when we're looking at a traditional pilates setting where the teacher is seen as the expert and the authority, the authority figure in the room I feel like there there can be this really unhealthy level of codependence where pilates is the product so what that means is as the teacher and I'm the expert I will always have to be the expert in order for you to to be my customer because if I empower you and I show you how to do these exercises on your own and that you can actually troubleshoot and problem solve for yourself, what is the point of me? Like mm. that's the sense that I got when I was observing this quietly as a baby Pilates teacher is like, I'm watching all of these instructors who were above me in the hierarchy and I'm watching them and their interactions and the the words that they chose to use the gatekeeping that they did when they would only allow certain people to do these certain things based on the the way that their body was moving and the abilities that they judged them to have and i'm thinking oh so is this how it is like you get to make call all the shots and it just felt at the time i thought it was natural um and now i'm thinking i don't like it i would prefer that my clients have autonomy over their some choices. And, you know, going back to what you said, Raf, and we can dig into this a bit more. The power dynamic is a sliding scale, just like with parents and children. I'm not going to hand my children my car keys and my credit card and be like, yeah, go have a good time. Like that's just not how it works. But as my kids start to get older, it's like, you can take the car. The car has a curfew of 10 p.m. You have a curfew of midnight, but the car has a curfew of 10 p.m. And only you and your brother can drive in. The, you know what I mean? Like it's it's a sliding scale. And as they continue to grow and we start to build more of that trust and more of that self-efficacy, they get a little bit more and they get a little bit more. And then all of a sudden, like in a going back to the Pilates setting, like I work with clients who I have worked with for six, seven years at this point. They could probably teach the class for me. The tables could turn where, you know, like the tables could turn they could teach the class for me, yet they keep coming back. So why are they coming back? They're not coming back because I'm the boss. They're coming back because of something else. Pilates is not the product.
0: Well, I want to dig into that. And Kyle, so that's what I want to ask you is, do you really think, do you, do you agree that it comes back to like, basically, I don't know, fear of death? Like if, if, if I'm not, if, if I don't have more knowledge than my client and I don't have something to teach them and, and tell them what to do, it's like, well, what what am I here for? I might as well go away and, and I'm going to die. So, or, you know, do you think that's where it comes from?
2: I do. Um, I, I really do. And I, I'm biased in this and that, and I talked a little bit about this offline, but I think it comes a little bit from the history of Pilates and all of the dance divas that came into the elderdom of Pilates land. And really, for people who aren't dancers are aware, there is a huge construct around becoming irrelevant with time and the need to kind of be this performative person. And I never knew Romana, I never knew Kathy, I never knew Corolla. But from the people that I know who knew them, they very much had that or Ron Fletcher, all they had those qualities that like, they entered a room. I mean, there's, Teachers who studied with those elders now who have personas like that, hashtag Kathy Ross Nash, where it's like they they are expected to be treated like royalty, and there is a sense of hierarchy. Actually, sorry, sidebar, but there was a point at which Kathy Ross Nash, and I'm not blowing up her spot. This is on Instagram. You can go find it yourself. Um, had had this whole rant because she had a lawsuit with a student of hers where she claimed that the student was stealing her work. Um, and she wrote a whole thing about how offended she was that these days she just feels like people make up the position of master instructor because being a master instructor is something that had to be earned and ordained. And I I believe that you need a base knowledge to be an educator, um, and there's some, that could be like a whole separate side conversation, but the way that it was being discussed specifically by Kathy Ross Nash on the internet felt to me very much in that sort of frame of, if I admit that I don't know something, or if I allow myself to be equals with my students, I will become irrelevant. No one will want to buy my product. Part of what they're paying for is this master knowledge, the sort of guruism. Um And I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but yeah, I think it does come from a place of fear um, and feeling like if we admit that we don't know something, we can no longer be the sort of authority in the room, which I know you have both talked about many times, doesn't necessarily have to be the case. I think your mindset around what that is and being able to admit that you don't know something is maybe something to unpack, but um, yeah.
0: So there's, there are all of these diverse kind of, Threads or skeins of thread here. There's the 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 dance heritage of which has a very hierarchical way of doing things. And in uh, you know, I had a a great chat with Hannah from um, Pilates Exchange podcast about this, the dance you know, the, the the hierarchy of dance, which like within the court de ballet, like it's a very, very hierarchical structure. And you would never dream of questioning a statement by somebody who's above you in in the hierarchy. It's just, it's not done. Uh, and that a lot of, you know, her contention is a lot of that has sort of infused into the culture of the way Pilates is taught in Pilates education. Uh, and that has infused in into the way that Pilates is taught between Pilates teachers and and clients, and it's sort of like it's in the water. It's so so much here that we don't even see it, you know. Um, and so, alright, so there's that. And then there's also, and I I I think it's a separate thing, although maybe related. This fear that if we don't have authority, but you know, through superior knowledge and and insight above our clients, well, then we become irrelevant. And you know, there's a fear there that we will lose the client or we'll look foolish or, or both. And, and then, I don't know, there's this, I'm not sure how it sort of all interrelates, but there's this sort of social construct of empowerment is, is, is kind of a trendy buzzword. And trendy is a word that only someone in their fifties would probably use now. (laughs) It's not a trendy word anymore. Um, that, you know, like when I was learning Stott Pilates in the early 2000s, I I don't think this came from Stott Pilates. I think it just came from the the instructor trainers that were around me at the time, that they used to say, knowledge is power and we empower our clients with knowledge, right? And I used to repeat those same words and it always, like it never quite felt right to me because I, I it just didn't I didn't feel like I was empowering people with knowledge or like I couldn't quite join the dots on that. Uh, and now I think it's like, no, we weren't empowering people with knowledge. We were just like overwhelming people with useless factoids, which is completely a different thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's so, 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 all right. So, so far we've got this kind of somewhat bleak dystopian vision of like, there's this real authoritarian hierarchical structure to the way Pilates is conducted. And at the same time, we're saying, let's empower everybody. That's sort of like the Ministry of Information is, you know, <laughs> introducing doublespeak here. <laughs> Cheer me up.
2: Well, I don't want to throw a wrench in the works and I want to give Nat a chance to respond. But something I've been thinking about um, it's reading about Joseph and his original. Jim in New York City is I know that he from my understanding he didn't supervise people all the time like part of the premise was you were supposed to come in and like have a workout that you did on your own regularly like he would help he would get you into the groove of a practice and he would give you feedback and if you went to specific sessions where he was teaching or Clara was teaching they would give you in, you know, walk around and give feedback, but everyone was kind of moving all at once and doing different things, and there was the idea that you would come in and have your own self practice um Is that both of your understandings yeah. as well? okay,
0: yeah, I've heard that too but yep. but just to jump in, joseph's book, you know is extremely. Like I would say, that's an authoritarian teaching style in the book. It's it's saying you must do all caps, you know, execute these exercises precisely as written. Otherwise, you will lose all the benefits, you know. And he repeats that like I don't know how many dozens of times throughout the book. So, and I'm not sure. Some people have said to me that maybe that's just the translation because he wrote it in German and somebody translated it into English or something. But yeah, I don't really know. I can't make a judgment on that. But yeah, how do you reconcile that? Because I've I've read, you know, obviously John. Um, John Howard Steele's book, Caged Lion, where he talks about his experiences as a client of Joseph Pilates, and it does sound very much as you describe, but then there's the all caps in the return to life.
2: Sure, but I guess, and so I'm not necessarily releasing Joe from being an authoritarian teacher. I think he probably was. Um, but, But the thing that I find that's interesting in the translation of this authoritarian teaching style into the elders and then into our now culture where we're trying to figure out what is and isn't empowerment is that i i think that joe is starting from the premise that you and return to life talks about this too he was going to heal the world because you were going to have your own personal practice mat practice that you could take with you anywhere in your pocket and all the people were going to be doing it the way that we teach pilates now often is not giving people permission or empowering them to have their own practice at all so i think that's the part that i find interesting
0: yeah, it's weird. I was taught when I was first learning as an instructor that clients should never use the equipment unsupervised. Oh yeah. You know, which now I now I know about how Joseph did things. It's like that's basically how he operated his gym. It's like everyone was unsupervised most of the time. What are your thoughts, Nat?
1: I have really complicated feelings about Joseph Pilates, and I'm not sure if I want to go public with them, but I will. Um, I think that the overall spirit of Joe wanting to Put exercise out into the world was to empower people physically and mentally, the whole body. Um, I do think his style was not very empowering. Like, I don't know for sure if it's this translation of the book from German to English that makes him seem really bossy. I love that word, bossy. I come from the 80s (laughs) Um, and I was called bossy. his the the wording is very bossy and I think it's probably true because if you look at footage of how he tactile cues his uh, clients it's bossy it's very very bossy and then you know how he would force people to take a shower and use dry brushes and all kinds of things like he had lots of weird weird rules and shit. Uh, So I think there were definitely elements of him that were very his of his work that was empowering. And I do think that if I were alive around Joseph Pilates time, I probably would not have gotten along with him. I don't think that he was very empowering to women, per se. But that's just my personal opinion. Um, But I do find, you know, that we're talking about like how we can't leave clients alone on the machine. It's a fireable offense in in certain studios you cannot walk out of the room if if your clients are on the machine there have been there has been at least one situation for me where i remember like telling everybody okay everybody i had to leave the room so i'm like come off of your machine please pause for 5 seconds i need to leave the room so
0: mm. so how do we reconcile yeah. this natalie you know if we agree that empowerment is on a spectrum it's a continuum you know where? How do we? And presumably, there's not going to be one correct amount of empowerment. You know that will cover all clients, all situations. So, how do we find the right amount? What do you? Where do you think the sweet spot lies?
1: I think the sweet spot depends, but I also think so. Let me let me start here. I was just having this conversation with our breath students. At the end of the day, the buck stops with you as a teacher. So, when it comes to safety issues like tripping hazards balance issues on the bed, the buck stops with you. So don't make it a choice. Uh, I'll give you an example. So one of the ACOG guidelines is to prevent blunt force trauma. And in the Pilates setting or in the studio uh, gym setting, mostly that means tripping and falling, right? So if, for uh, for instance, we've got kneeling, high kneeling arm circles, facing the footbar, You've got your hands in the straps, and the full expression of the exercise is you're standing on your knees, you've got your hands in the straps, facing the foot bar, and you're making circles in one direction or the other. If we apply the ACOG guidelines to this exercise, we are going to make sure that our pregnant clients and our clients who have balance challenges are either sitting on their heels or even just sitting crisscross or sitting on a box. We we don't want them on high knees because one of the things that we know as Pilates professionals is having your hands in the straps, facing the foot bar and being in a balance challenge position is one of the most precarious positions that you can have when you're on the reformer. Okay. So I am not going to give my pregnant clients and balance, compromise clients a choice. I am not empowering them to make a choice. Their choice is to either sit crisscross or (laughs) sit down on their heels. Those are the choices. And I've had situations in a teaching prac where I've happened to be in the room and I hear the student saying, okay, we're going to start you on low knees now, but if you want to, you could try high knees. And I'm like, "Mm, no. In this situation, the buck stops with you. So just for this instance, while she's pregnant, let's just keep her on low knees because I would not want to be the reason why someone fell forward into the spring. That's That to me is like one really small example of where I want to be a little bit more firm with choices because it has to do with safety. Um.
0: It strikes me as you say what? that, uh, sorry to, to interrupt, yeah. just with that exercise, I think it's a great example that there are, there's not just like a level of empowerment, but there's actually degrees within each level. So for example, uh, you you might go from one end to say like, hey, just, you know, you can start low or you can start high, do whatever you want, you know, or you might say at the other end, you might say, no, you know, Natalie, I want you to stay in a low kneel for this exercise today. Right. Um, or you might say something in between, which would be maybe give them a criteria. So if, you know, you feel A, B, or C, or if you notice you can lift your arms easily, or if you have done this more than ten times before, or what you give them a criteria and say, Okay, if that's the case and you want to come up to a kneel, then do so. Right. If you've been here less than ten times, I want you to stay, you know, sitting in a low kneel. So you can give people limited autonomy you know it doesn't have to be again a a yes or a no it's like to what extent do they have autonomy oh what do you what do you what do you think the what's the is there a formula for finding the sweet spot so how much autonomy empowerment you know do we are those words synonymous in your mind is it are are we talking about the same thing autonomy and empowerment?
2: i want them to be synonymous i don't know if that's how everybody else thinks about them but that's how i program when i'm thinking about empowerment i'm gearing towards autonomy um yeah
0: so how do we how do we how do you calculate what's the formula for calculating the correct level of autonomy to to empower someone with
2: that's a great question um i mm-hmm. think it really depends on familiarity well the base of my relationship with whoever is in the room so Um, At this point, I don't really teach groups, for the most part, that are larger than 12 people at a time, which are pretty small, and only four people on machines. Um, And I think that, so if you're familiar with somebody, like, like to Nat's example, like with the pregnant client, if that pregnant client was someone who had been coming to Pilates for five years before she, like she comes to your Sunday class every Sunday for like five years and has been doing Pilates with you for her entire pregnancy. Um, I think I would be more willing to offer like a layer to her where you where you start everybody may, maybe in like a crisscross or like on your knees butt to heels situation and then you know give the offer after you've done a few reps to come up to a high kneeling position and you could make that available to that specific client. But if it's a pregnant client who's never been in your class before and you don't know anything about them, I think the more responsible thing to do in that situation would be to have them sit crisscross or butt to heels. Um, So to answer your question, Raf, I think it's sort of client and situation dependent, but one of the ways that we can control for that as instructors in real time is um, how we offer exercises. So always scaffolding or layering from the ground up. And something that I personally like to do that I find really effective is that once you've built an exercise from the ground up, um, there's always another layer that you can add with either speed or power. And you can invite people to rep things out or to push, like you kind of set the tone where you say, okay, like you have, you're doing downstretch. You're like doing downstretch. Okay. If you're feeling really good and you want to take off a spring, you want to be on one spring and you want to like Press the carriage out as far as possible, hold it there, and then pull yourself back in, but also challenge the pace while you're doing that because you feel good. Go for it. If you like where you're at and you want to keep full springs um, or you need to add a spring for support, like do that. Like to just offer the options so that people can make choices. I think it's like a long winded way of saying, basically, in the Pilates space, I think what autonomy looks like in a group class setting is often giving people choices. So feeling like they can do something else than what you're saying. Because I don't know about either of you, but I've had that experience in a large group class where the instructor is cueing something super specifically and for whatever reason, it just doesn't work for my body. So I make another choice, but then that person will come over and kind of be like, that's not what I said. Don't make that choice. Um, And that's what I'm trying to avoid or control for when I'm thinking about what it means to empower somebody in their practice. And then in a more general sense, and specifically in a one-on-one setting, I think something that's really important and that I'm always working on is I want people to do Pilates when they're not with me. Like i I want people to have exercises in their back pocket like nothing makes me happier than clients telling me that they've been on vacation and that they did like a little mat sequence on the beach based on stuff we've worked on like that just makes me overjoyed I want that for everybody like I think that that's the point like that's why we do the thing um so I I like to encourage more more self-practice too
0: I'm glad you brought it back into kind of a, just a general fitness context, uh, rather than kind of just the, the just the context of of safety within the realms of of pregnancy guidelines, because I think that's there's an interesting point here that really gets to the kind of fear of death thing we talked about before, which is we're just discussing in um, in the diploma at the moment we're we're talking about strength training, and one of the one of the bits of research we we look at is that uh, there are a couple of studies where They, where the researchers look at participants uh, in gyms. This is in gyms, not in Pilates. um, But they, they at the loads that they self-select, right? And then how many reps they do with that load. And what they find is pretty consistently for both women and men that people self-select loads that are about half of what they should be doing. You know, at the number of reps they're doing. So if they're doing ten reps, they choose an exercise. They choose a load they can do about twenty reps right? But then they only do 10 reps with it. So most people are leaving like almost all their potential strength gains on the table. Like they're virtually getting no benefit, right? Um, Because they self-select loads that are way too light. And And there's also research showing that when people go with a personal trainer, well, the personal trainer often will push them harder and make them choose a heavier load and do more reps. And I think that's ultimately where we add value you know for most of our clients most of the time especially after the first dozen lessons where they know how to do the roll up now and and so it's not there's not more like necessarily technical information we can give them but it's like okay well you probably would have stopped 10 reps ago if you were just doing this yourself at home but i'm going to take away your autonomy and essentially peer pressure you into doing more reps right but that's why they pay us they're actually paying us to take away their power in that very specific situation.
2: I mean, that's why I pay my trainer 100%. And to your point, like I go work out with my trainer, he peer pressures me. And then the next time I go to the gym, I remember the training session I had with him and I'm like, oh man, I do have to add an extra 10 pounds. <laughs> yep, for sure.
0: So so in that situation, I mean, I think we actually wanted. I mean, you could say it's really it's, it's disempowering the client. It's saying like, actually, no, I'm going to make the decision about when you stop, right? Like, you need to do another five,
1: or you could say, Natalie, what do
0: you think about that? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's one way to say it. You could say, you could say that you are disempowering your client and pushing them to do more, or you could say you're empowering your client by providing them an opportunity. Push themselves and create more challenge. You're empowering them to try a little bit more. And I think that's something that we can certainly do all the time is to create an environment where you empower people to be curious and to try, right? Like, what is the work? Because what I say to my clients who want to pick up the one pound weight, and it makes me crazy. Like, I grit my teeth, I'm like clenching my fist because I'm thinking, have you ever held a newborn baby? A newborn baby is about seven to eight pounds. Like, come on, your groceries are more than this. Like, don't put away that one pound dumbbell. I just want to toss the one pound dumbbells in the garbage at my studio. So, <laughs> what I want, I, what I say is, I empower you to get a heavier weight. Try it out, and I also empower you to put it down and take a lighter weight if it doesn't work out for you and you're you find it intolerable. So it it really to me is just in the packaging. Like I empower you to try it. Um Heath says, Heath Lander says the outcome, the effort is the outcome. And I want people to do that because I think sometimes I I know we've all seen it. We have clients who are afraid to fail. So they don't want to fail and they don't want to look imperfect and I empower people to look really imperfect, and I remind them that actually strength is about failure. So if you fail, you've actually stimulated a strength gain for your body in some way, shape, or form, even your brain for your mental health. So um, I find that really empowering.
0: I, I, I'm sorry, I'm still stuck. Um, I'm a little bit of broken record, but I'm the distinction between empowerment and autonomy seems to me now like we're we're sailing the boat off in a slightly different direction because this is a sort of an odysseus you know lashing himself to the mast and saying to the crew you know don't don't untie me no matter what I say you know and then they they go past the is it the mermaids or the harpies or the, the whoever they the sirens. Go, go past the sirens. the sirens that's right <laughs> um I'm mixing up my different mythologies there. Uh, and so the sirens, uh, you know, sing their alluring song, and Odysseus goes crazy and says to the the sailors, "Unlash me, let me out!" And the sailors go, "No, no, you you made his promise." And he's saying, "No, I order you to untie me," <laughs> but they don't. And so he survives because the sirens sing their alluring song. And if he'd been untied, he would have thrown himself into the water and and gone down to a watery grave with them. And in fact, all of the other crew, yeah, died um, because in, because of that. So, so. Th- it, so we're kind of making a similar bargain with our clients, right? So our clients kind of, let's say their better self or their higher self or their, you know, it comes in and says to us, hey, look, I want, you know, this is the implicit conversation. I want you to push me. And even when I say, no, I've had enough, I want you to keep pushing me, right? And then in class, they're like, oh, no, I've had enough. I want you to stop pushing me. <laughs> but actually, they actually kind of paradoxically want us to not to disregard what they're saying. So uh, unriddle that for me, (laughs) Nat,
2: please.
1: I don't think it's, I I don't think it's an either or, or like it's, it's not diametrically opposed because it's always an invitation, right? Like, and Mm. I really, I really try hard to make everything I say with the exception of a safety thing. I make everything a question. Can you Mm. lift your head up a little higher? Can you go grab a different weight and try it out? Can you take off a spring and long stretch? See what happens. See what happens if you do this. The worst thing that can happen is that you don't like it and you get, need to go back a little bit. I invite you to try this layer. See what happens, right? So it's like there is, it's, it's, not, it's not, I'm not forcing. And then there's no punishment afterwards. It's like you get, you get a high five no matter what because you showed up. Like You get high fives for showing up, uh, but you do not get high fives for trying to be perfect. You get more high fives for for like trying new things and trying to push yourself a little bit more. And I'm going to be here for you um, when you hate me because I'm doing the thing that you're hiring me to do. You're going to hate me and hate me. And then you're going to thank me.
0: If if we were working out though, like if I was working you out, right? If you were doing a, a session with me and say we were doing lunges and we I said, okay, grab these weights, we're going to do 12, right? And you got to 10 and you were like, I think I'm done. And I said to you, no, I think you can do four more. Like, I reckon you probably would find it in you to do four more. And I guess I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't phrase that as an invitation. So maybe that's a, you know, it, it doesn't really feel authoritarian to me. Maybe I'm just kidding myself here, but it feels to me like you're Odysseus and you, you made me promise to not untie you from the mast, right? And now here we are and you're saying, untie me, untie me. And I'm saying, uh uh-uh. uh. Mm-hmm. You don't get off.
1: I'm definitely Odysseus. I'm 100% (laughs) Odysseus. (laughs) Yeah. And if you told me to do four more, I'd hate you and I'd cuss you out and I would try to do four more. For sure I would. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Something that I thought about when Nat was speaking is I think sometimes what we're also doing when we're teaching people that is actually giving them autonomy is we're encouraging them to be brave. Um, I talk to my clients about this a lot. Um. So it, I I understand the comparison you're making where you're saying it can be very authoritarian to say, "Nat, I think you got four more in you. Can you do four more?" And then she's probably going to reach deep down and do those four more lunges. Um. But what I experience a lot in those scenarios also is because, as instructors and Pilates professionals, we are gauging like we're watching people we're looking for muscular failure we're looking for effort we're looking at how they're breathing like there's all of these assessments that you're making in real time in the moment as an instructor and anytime you ask somebody for more or you give the offer of could you do for more It's coming from a place of from the outside as a non-biased person, like seeing based on what their body is doing, that they probably have four more in them. And maybe that person doesn't even know that they have those four more reps in them. And that's part of the service that you provide. Um, Or I've even had this with um, a more recent client who is somebody who's getting out of all this chronic pain. And because she was in all this chronic pain for years, she thought that she couldn't do things like sit cross-legged and all these different like sort of normal life positions. And as she's gotten stronger, she was still terrified of trying to test any of those positions because she had a memory in her mind that she was broken. And that's something that has hurt her for a long time. And in that scenario, all I did was empower her to be brave and explore that movement option. And it turns out that she can actually do those things. And that was the moment of empowerment for her where she was like, Oh my God, I can sit cross-legged now. Without
0: pain, like that's amazing. Huh. So in that situation, what a great, what a great sort of uh, example where essentially you're leading her through that new path and saying, "Hey, look, you can do this." But is in the moment you're taking leadership and you're you're actually saying, "No, we're going to move ahead and we're going to turn left and we're going to you know take a break and we, etc." And by her, you know relaxing and letting you you know take the steering wheel you take the power really she then realized oh actually i can do this and then she becomes empowered to drive herself but it wasn't through you saying oh just do whatever you want and see what happens it's like with you was you actually saying no with your permission i'm going to get you to walk with me in this direction at this speed and we'll see what happens and so it's kind of like Again, it's the Odysseus and the mask thing, but it's a little bit different because she, she didn't necessarily ask you to push her or to, you know, to take her through that. But there's some kind of implicit bargain that you've made with her as your client, where she wants your help to to get past this pain condition, where she didn't explicitly say to you, "Hey, I want you to push me," and even when I'm afraid and it hurts, I want you to keep pushing. Me. It's like I'm pretty sure she wouldn't have said that to you, but she. But what you did, seems to me, was within the scope of the the implicit agreement that you had with her, but it was in the moment, you being powerful and her being empowered subsequently because of that.
2: I think that's true, but I like to always, yes, that is true, but I like to always talk about it as like co-collaborating, like I, I see myself as more of a coach and a guide versus like a master of Pilates who can fix your body like to me that's the difference you know um is I know some,
0: you're not a master coach
2: hi not I guess not I mean mate. it's not according to Kathy Ross Nash um but <laughs> but I think that that's when you can approach a situation this is true in education as well um as someone who's facilitating like I see myself as somebody who's facilitating experiences and half of that is the client or the students that are in the room and then the other half is me like it's not just me coming into the room and having all of this incredible knowledge that I'm going to like give you and then heal you with it's the process of going back and forth like teacher and instructor and creating a safe environment and when I say safe I don't mean like Safety culture safe where we're so worried about the headrest being up when you're in short spine and all that stuff. I mean emotionally safe, which this is a messy area and I'm potentially gonna misspeak, miss but
0: <laughs> Don't get yeah, I
2: might get canceled. When I say emotionally safe, what I mean is a a atmosphere, creating an atmosphere in your class or in your sessions where you develop enough of a relationship with the people that you are working with where they trust you to lead them through whatever you're choosing to do that day but you as the authority power person in the room also have the flexibility to respond and adjust to what you're seeing in front of you and I hate that I just said that that way because every Pilates Textbook manual since the beginning of Ramana has said teach the body in front of you, and that I also think gets misconstrued sometimes. And I should do that, but in the way that we talk about it, I think is not always correct. But what I'm trying to get to is that you can be, you can have knowledge and you can share that knowledge, and you can do it in a way that doesn't have to feel like you are overpowering the person that you are working with or the students that you're working with. And there are times to step on the gas as the teacher, but there's also times to step off the gas and I think that an important part of understanding when you make those two decisions is really similar to how classroom teachers decide whether or not students are actually taking in content is you have to assess in real time and do little checks and balances with your students or your clients to see if you're both on the same page and then make whatever decision you need to make together to go forward from there and that that's what creates empowering movement outcomes Versus just dictating there's only one way to do elephant and if you don't do elephant this way, then you're not ready to do elephant and you can never do elephant in my class ever
0: What do you think about the idea that there's a continuum of well basically that empower there's there's a, there are stages let's shall we say of empowerment and what I mean by that is uh, you know I've been educating people in Pilates for more than a decade and a half <clears throat> excuse me and I used to be, I mean, I'm a very laissez-faire person by nature. Like I really, my parenting style is very hands-off. My, my teaching style is to give you the information and then let you, just, you know, fuck around and find out, see how, how it works for you and whatever. And I think sometimes that can be very, that can be very good. Some people it works really, really works for other people it doesn't work for. Uh, and where I've found it doesn't work a lot is with beginners and people in their formative stages. So, uh, you know, I came to the conclusion a decade ago that, you know, whether you point your toes or flex your toes when you're doing the one leg circle makes fuck all difference to the results that you're going to get in terms of any meaningful outcome that you would want to have from doing the one leg circle. Um, so, you know, for years I said to students, hey, they would say to me, hey, should I point or flex my toes? I, I would say, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do. Right? I thought I was empowering them. But I, what ended up happening for almost all of them was I just got extremely anxious because they're like, well, I don't know the answer, right? So don't tell me, do whatever you want to do, because I don't even know how to know what I want in this situation. I'm, I'm a beginner, right? I'm a blank page. I don't have any criteria for making a decision here. So what I want you to do is tell me, point or flex, right? And when I, when I finally just like, oh, fuck it, all right, flex, they're like, oh, thank you. And now they're happy you know, and they, and they, now they feel good about how they're doing that exercise. And, and so, so I think as a beginner, you know, often my view now is that people want, they crave certainty and they crave simple rules about, okay, here are the three steps to achieve success in this endeavor, right? That does take a lot of the nuance out of it because as a br- brand new beginner, you don't really have the bandwidth to cope with the nuance or any of the context to cope with the nuance. But then as you get more and more experience, you start to think, well, hold on, why should I be flex my why is it important that we flex our foot all the time in one leg circle? What difference does it make? And then they come to me and they ask that and I say, You're right, it makes no difference. It doesn't matter what you do. And they're like, Well, why did you tell me to <laughs> flex? And I'm like, well, because otherwise you would have got super stressed and you wouldn't have known how to do it. Um, but now, congratulations, you've behind the curtain and you can do it any way you want. <laughs> so yeah, do, what do you think, Natalie, do you think do you think there's a there's a right amount of autonomy at a, at a given stage of mastery?
1: Yes. For people, Yes, I do. But I can't, I can't quantify it. I know exactly what you're talking about, because this happens all the time in the in the teacher training program, where in the beginning, they need a lot of structure, and they need some rules, right? So I'll use timing as an example, right? Let's look at the series of five, series of five, you've got one leg stretch, single leg stretch, double leg stretch, you know, all the way to crisscross right and they they go together they're really nice they really nicely go together and when we teach this series it would be mat 6 through 10 in the mat repertoire when we teach the series these are students who are in week three of the program so they're really fresh they're very very brand new and the question that comes up is how many reps do we give before we move on to the next exercise, right? And so we give them a formula, you know, let's do about between not five is too few, 15 might be too many somewhere in between. And maybe if you're nice, you're going to add a few bridges between some of the exercises. So the hip flexors and the neck can have a break, right? And so we, we give them this formula of like reps. And then at the end of the course, we're like, hey, remember when we told you that we wanted you to do somewhere between, you know, not not less than five and not more than 15? Well, we're going to throw that rule out the window. And now what we want you to do is actually look at the people in front of you to make a decision about when you want to move on to the next thing. That it really is, there's no formula for reps or timing. It really just depends on what your intention is when you teach the class and also the people in front of you and trying to gauge, you know, when too much has become too much. So we're taking that rule away, but it's like riding a bike. When you give your child a um, a bicycle to ride, you have training wheels and they need them for a while. You can't, well, and now they have, uh, now they have like the kind of bikes without the pedals. You know what I'm talking about? And the oh, kids walk. just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when I was growing up in the dinosaur ages, we had bikes with training wheels. And we first, the training wheels are very tight and they're very flush to the rest of the, the wheels and it goes. And then, then after a while, my dad's like, okay, girl. We need to make this a little more dangerous. So they loosen up the training wheels and all of a sudden you're riding and it's like there's one training wheel that will catch you and then you write yourself and then the other training wheel will catch you. And then after a while, my dad's like, okay, girl, it's time to take the training wheels off. That's that's how I see um, it is with with power and and working with people. In the beginning, you need to give them a little bit more. You got to tighten up the training wheels and then towards the end, you start to take the training wheels off. But I, I don't I, I don't quantify it.
0: Sometimes they need the illusion that the training wheels are still on, even when they're off. Like, I distinctly remember the moment my daughter learned to ride a bicycle without training wheels. She had the whole kind of scoot around bike with no pedals. And then she went to a bike with a handle on the back, mm-hmm. um, and I would hold the handle. And she would ride it as long as I was holding the handle. And she's like, I'm not going to ride it unless you hold the handle. I'm like, okay, I'm holding the handle. She's like, are you holding the handle? I'm like, I'm holding the handle. But I wasn't holding the handle. And then I was filming it on my phone. And um, then I brought her inside and I was like, okay, let's look at this film. She's like, oh, I was writing. And, and from then on, she didn't need me to hold the handle. But she owned, paradoxically, she could write it herself because she thought I was in control. You know, so there was that kind of transitional moment for her where she actually did have the skill, but she didn't yet have the confidence yeah. in her skill where she needed to feel that she was like, I was doing, I was, I was there and I was doing it. And so, yeah, Kyle, do you think that's the same for our clients? Like, is there a moment where we need to have the illusion that we're in control?
2: I think it depends on the client, to be honest, (laughs) but I agree, but I agree with, um, both of you in that, When it comes to the beginners and the beginning times too much information is too much information and structure and specificity can be really comforting um like just because there is so much that beginners so much information that beginners are often taking in that they can't if you're like you could point or flex your foot they're like how do i even make that decision i don't even know where my foot is like (laughs) um yeah, I think it really depends. I think it depends on the client. but I think sometimes um, if 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 you can create scenarios in your sessions where you enable your students and your clients to surprise themselves, kind of like your daughter with her without her training wheels, like that to me is the magic. That's like that's always my goal. i I want them to have the the discovery that they can do a thing. Thinking that it's like me helping them do the thing, but really it's them doing the thing that we've been building them up to the entire time that we've been working on whatever we're working on, if that makes sense.
0: Mm. So it's sort of like uh, stealth empowerment.
2: It is stealth empowerment. I, I think, you know, it really depends. This is a maybe like a tangent. I have found that, at least in my experience, it also this is where I'm gonna get canceled for sure, gender tends to play a big role in it too, or at least in my experience with the clients that I've worked with, like a lot of the female clients that I've worked with, I find that they need more encouragement and a lot more sort of build, like building up, confidence building up before I can, before they're willing to fly on their own and feel like they're capable of flying on their own, even though I know that they're capable of it sort of before that they, they do. And often with a lot of my male clients, they're maybe because I'm a female teacher, they're often like, well, I don't want this lady to continue telling me what to do. So as soon as they can find empowerment or autonomy in their practice, they're like really gunning for it. Um, And again, this is just my teaching experience. There's all types of clients and people out there. um, So I can't speak for everyone, but um, I, I really think it depends on the person and the situation.
0: There's an interesting piece of research I saw a few weeks back. I'll see if I can dig it up and put it in the show notes that uh, they had male personal training clients uh, and they got them to do a workout with either a male trainer or a female trainer um, and they worked harder with the female trainer. Like the, the female trainer and male trainer were, were, were uh, like coached to give the exact same instructions and everything, but the you know female trainer, who I think happened to be quite attractive, um, got significantly more effort out of these guys. I can just imagine them all puffing up their chests and going like, yes, I'm going to show you how much I can bench press. You know? <laughs> Yeah, Yes, yeah, so I think it's probably a real phenomenon, what, what you've noticed. <laughs> but maybe it's not the women who need more encouragement, it's just the guys who are trying to show off.
2: Maybe, hard to
1: say.
0: Natalie, what are your thoughts?
1: I agree with what everybody said. I think one of the things that I was thinking about too when it comes to you know, how we can empower people and how much is enough and how much is too much and too little, I think maybe a good place for me to kind of start off As a foundation for everybody is to just really embrace the idea of movement optimism. It kind of boils down to that for me, is movement optimism. So if I if I can start from a place knowing that the body is anti-fragile and that we are so capable of so many things and that people deserve to have an excellent and rewarding workout experience, then I can tailor that. And maybe that just comes from experience having worked with, I've been working at a studio where we have um, a leveled system, right? So I have a beginner class an intermediate class and an advanced class. And obviously everybody eats off the same menu. That's what I say. Everybody eats off the same menu. I write one menu and everybody gets the same menu. However, my advanced class gets the most out of this menu because there's a lot less queuing, directing, giving options, giving more information. Than say in the intermediate class and the beginner class. So I write this menu, my program. The advanced class gets about a hundred percent. The intermediate class gets about eighty, and then the beginner class gets about sixty. But it it's the same menu. I start off knowing that everybody can do these things that I'm going to teach them, and that it. Boils down to some of the choices that I have to make, and the choices that I get to give the people who are coming to my class. But movement optimism was a really big one for me. You know, even things like um, realizing that pain isn't the same thing as injury, right? So, in the things, the ways that you talk to your clients when they say that something hurts. So this is something we teach in the in the Breathe program. Oftentimes, when someone says something hurts, it is our natural instinct to make it stop as opposed to asking somebody, do you think you could hang on for just a little bit longer, like pushing the needle a little bit? Um, That to me is really empowering. Trying to help our clients kind of sit with a little bit of discomfort, see if they can hang on for a little bit longer rather than like taking away the opportunity and just making it stop. I think those messages are really subconscious and subliminal, but they say something really important. Like, you're not, the teacher's not afraid, so I'm not going to be afraid. You know, that to me is part of movement optimism. Also, just in general, like really focusing on what people are doing right rather than what they're doing wrong. So going back to how we started, which is like, what I was used to in the Pilates classroom was a lot of nitpicking, a lot of micromanaging, a lot of focusing on the things that I wasn't doing correctly. And you know what? The thing is, it was done with love. And and the way that I was taught, because I I grew up in a Pilates training program that had X dancers in it. And I remember one time in the training program, my trainer was correcting a whole bunch of people. And she said, you do know that um, if you we were in a dance studio, that when the teacher corrected you, it was a sign of love, care, and affection. And that the worst thing that could happen to you in a dance studio is a teacher brushing you off and just ignoring you. That was her way of validating the fact that she was doing all these. What I now see is just lots of micromanaging and nitpicking. For her, it was it was just the language of love. And so um, I can't falter for that. Like that's, that's a culture, that's an, a legitimate culture that I just am not a part of. And now I, I choose not to be a part of, but like, I would rather just catch people doing something right and encourage, continue to encourage people doing the, all those right things. Because I think for me, like the biggest part of empowerment is like getting people to come back, right? If we just look at pure physical empowerment getting people to move every day because there's so many other things you could do than moving. Um, Getting people to move every day is really empowering. So one of the great ways to do that is to get them to like you and to like class.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, Basically just by being fearless yourself, um, that can, that is very empowering because people take their cues from you. And I also love your description of basically the the menu and different kind of levels of, I guess, autonomy that you would give people as beginners, you would give them maybe very clearly defined choices with criteria for which one to choose. And as intermediate people, you might say, okay, A, B or C, choose whichever one you want. And then as advanced people, just be like, okay, we're going to do elephant and do it how you like to do it, you know? I
2: think Kyle, adding on. cutting to- words? Yeah, I was going to say, adding, I, I agree with everything that but the only thing I would add, which um, also converted movement optimist, let go of movement perfection, um, person over here. I, I think embracing the idea that exercise is supposed to be hard. Um, and I don't mean like, you know, sweat it all off and get your bikini bod. I mean, like exercise is supposed to be challenging. Um, and the challenge is what can change you and that can manifest in many different ways. And I, something that I like to talk a lot about is that learning how to do hard things in the Pilates studio can also translate into helping you learn how to do hard things in your life. Like it's good to learn how to be uncomfortable. Um, And in addition to encouraging people by calling things out when they're doing them right, I also like to encourage people when I just see them trying. Like effort is something that should be rewarded. Um, That's half, half the battle is showing up and then the other half is just like doing the work and the work is hard and it's sweaty and it's messy and it doesn't have to look any specific way despite what some of us have been indoctrinated to believe Um, and i think the more that we can rally around that the more people will actually leave pilates land feeling empowered and like they want to come back because they leave with a sense of accomplishment or they identify things that they want to continue working on Um, and if as a coach instructor guide whatever word you feel like suits you you want to operate from a place of creating a teaching environment that enables those things I just think it invites a lot more people into the conversation aka your classroom meaning more people can do Pilates I think a lot of people feel like they can't do Pilates because we make it so specific all of the time um I can't remember his name for the life of me. He posted this on Instagram recently. I'll remember later. He's a male Pilates instructor who has like a large following. but he, he wrote something on Instagram recently about how he thinks more men would do Pilates if we just taught Pilates in a way that was inviting to men. Basically. I, which
0: This <laughs> was James Trinari. He just posted it to the Yeah,
2: that's who it was. Sherlock and I read James. that note. Yeah, shout out James. I was like, yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> less ballet hands, like all what I mean, if you do ballet hands, no shade on you. But just that there could be more options than that. Maybe someone could choose to do ballet hands in your class and someone could also just like be a man in a Pilates class and both of those things can be fine.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? This the idea that movement should be graceful, which is something I was always taught when I was learning to teach Pilates. And something that I've taught a lot of my clients, which like I'm not by nature graceful and have never studied dance. And I think most men probably are in a similar boat at male dancers aside, obviously. Um but yeah, I think that's that's a very interesting point. I think uh, I'd like to just end by saying like I feel like this is a good I real I, I feel like we kind of kind of have resolved this to some extent um with the idea of being of being fearless yourself and and optimistic and there's some kind of a progression of of autonomy that people go through as they become more expert at something they need they need less less scope and more clearly defined you know criteria for choices early on uh whereas as they progress they, they they can sort of figure it out um but I also think there's something in this sort of people coming to us and sort of making the Odysseus bargain where they cede their autonomy to us, you know, for 50 minutes so that we can help them do what they know they need to do but they probably wouldn't do if left to their own devices on their lounge room floor with a pre-recorded video. So, yeah, I think there's something in us saying like, no, I think you can do more, you know. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, Anyway, thank you very much. It's been a very uh, interesting discussion. I hope uh, the listeners got something useful out of it.
1: Thank you. Good talk. Thanks, guys.
0: After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area.